Well, good morning, everyone. As Nate said earlier, my name is Weston Duke, and I am the RUF campus minister at Middle Tennessee State just down the road. And before we look at our text this morning, I did just want to take a moment to say thank you for Cornerstone's support of the ministry of RUF. When I came into this role about a year ago, I was very encouraged to see how many partnerships in the gospel were already awaiting me. And so it's my privilege and my pleasure to be here with you this morning. Last fall, I took our students through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at the theme of the kingdom of God. And so when Nate asked me to preach on a text about mission, I thought that we could look at together the end of Matthew's Gospel on a text that's often known as the Great Commission. But I believe that this is a doubly fitting text because it's not only a text on mission, it's also an Easter text. We often talk about the Great Commission in isolation, but it's very important to remember that this account follows closely on the heels of Jesus' resurrection. In fact, the first 15 verses of Matthew chapter 28 are all about the resurrection following the crucifixion of Jesus. And so as we read these words, I want us to keep in mind that they are tightly connected to the truth of Jesus' death and resurrection. So with that, let's turn our attention to God's word. This is Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word which stands for, for, forever, which has been preserved throughout the ages and given to us now, and we pray that we would hear you speaking to us. Would you give us ears to hear you? Would you give us eyes to behold your glory? And would you give us hearts to receive you and your love for us? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So working with college students, I have a lot of conversations about picking classes, choosing majors, deciding between potential careers, and behind all of these conversations is really one larger question. It very rarely gets stated this way, but the question is, what is my purpose? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? This is a very big question for college students because they're at a crucial juncture in their life in which they're making decisions that could alter the whole trajectory of their lives. But I don't think this question is just limited to college students. No, even after college, the stresses of new adulthood cause people in their 20s and 30s to have what's been dubbed a quarter-life crisis. And we all know of the proverbial midlife crisis in which people in their 40s and 50s start to make rather uncharacteristic decisions because they, they begin to doubt what they've been living for. A loss of purpose can also come later in life when our kids finally leave home or when we retire from our careers. Yes, I think that we all live with this question of, what is my purpose? 
What am I supposed to be doing with my life? And there are certain times in life where this question is brought to the fore. And I think the disciples were facing one of those times in this passage. If you think about it, they had Jesus, they had followed Jesus for three years. They had hitched their wagon to the Jesus train, so to speak. They believed that he really was the Messiah, that he really was going to bring in the kingdom of God. And then their hopes came crashing in as they saw him crucified by the Roman government. Imagine what it must have been like for them to walk home from Golgotha that day, wondering, what do we do now? Imagine how lost they must have felt. Imagine how their purpose and their life had suddenly been stripped from them. But then they hear that Jesus is somehow alive, that he has come back from the dead, and a spark of hope rekindles. And I'm, I'm sure their minds began racing, what, what, what do we do now? What do we do now? And they're told by some of the women that saw Jesus that they are to go to Galilee and meet him on the mountain that he had appointed. And so they go there and they meet the risen Lord. And there, Jesus gives his disciples a new purpose, a new commission. But this commission was not only for the disciples there. They were paradigmatic for all Christians. They are models for all of us who are citizens of the kingdom of God. And so just as the disciples were commissioned into the service of the risen king, so the Lord Jesus gives us a purpose in his kingdom as well. And this morning, we're going to look at the king's commission in three points. We're going to see the premise to the commission, the particulars of the commission, and the promise of the commission. The premise, the particulars, and the promise. So first, the premise to the commission. Now we often very quickly rush into the Great Commission in, in verse 19, but actually the first thing that comes out of Jesus' mouth when he meets the disciples is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has already demonstrated that he has authority. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, the people said that he taught as one who had authority. But he wasn't just talk, he also showed that he had the authority to forgive sins and to heal. And so now that Jesus has suffered on the cross and risen again from the dead, he has been vindicated as the true king, and God the Father has made him king over all things. He has invested him with authority over all things, whether in heaven or on earth. Nothing is excluded from the lordship of Christ. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once put it, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Jesus is king over all. He's king over music and arts, over business and commerce, over technology, over medicine, over politics, over governments, over our families, our relationships, and over our lives. And that is why only Jesus can give us the purpose of our lives, because he is the one who ultimately has authority over us. But we commonly look elsewhere for purpose and direction, don't we? 
As I'm talking to college students, they often look to their parents because their parents do have real authority over them while they are dependent upon them. But we all know that even while our dependence on our parents may end, their authority over us often doesn't. Our whole, our whole lives long can be driven by a desire for our parents to be proud of us. We want to live in a way that pleases them. And in doing so, we allow them to steer and direct our lives. Or we can look to our peers around us for purpose. And this is often very subtle. You know, we don't say, yeah, I just do whatever Jim tells me to do. But we want validation from our friends and our neighbors and our coworkers so much that we just begin living in a way that makes us feel like we fit in, that gets people to like us. But when we just try to keep up with the lifestyle of those around us, then we are making those around us our de facto authorities. Or another common source of authority in our culture is ourselves. We are told that we can determine our own purpose. We can follow our own path. And do you know how I think this manifests most often? It's when we do what we feel like. You know, we say, I feel like going out to dinner tonight. And so who is anyone else to tell me that I can't do that? Who is anyone else to tell me how to spend my money? And this is most evident in the times when things get in the way of doing what we feel like doing. It, it seems like a personal injustice. But whenever we set up our, our feelings as the standard of what to do, whenever we start looking to them, we're really looking to ourselves as the authority to direct us. But Jesus is the one who truly has authority over our lives. He has authority not only over our lives, but over our family, over our friends, over our feelings, over everything to which and for which we look for purpose and direction. And even though we have tried so often to crown other things as king, Jesus wants us in his service. He invites us to come and find our purpose in him. And you'll notice that he actually doesn't ask us to give him authority, he has it, whether we recognize it or not. And so when we come and submit to Jesus as king, we're simply aligning ourselves with reality. If I may put it this way, we are putting ourselves on the right side of history because the Bible says that the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One day, all heaven and earth will recognize the authority that Jesus has as king. His purposes are going to prevail. And that is the premise for receiving our commission from him. But what exactly is that commission for us? Well, that leads us to the particulars of the commission. So I don't often do this in sermons, but there's just so much packed into this next sentence that I think it's worthy of walking through it phrase by phrase, starting with the second word in verse 19, therefore. Now, it's a good rule of biblical interpretation that whenever we come to this word, we should ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it tells us here that the particulars of this commission are logically connected to the premise. 
It is because that Jesus has all authority that we as his disciples are to carry out his mission. And we're to carry out that mission with confidence, knowing that he is sovereign over all things, that his mission will not and cannot fail. But again, what is this mission? Well, the first thing that he says is go. And many have placed emphasis on this word as if it's the main thing in the commission. If we're not going somewhere else, then we're not being obedient to the Great Commission. But there are actually four verbs that give us the outline of the, main, of the Great Commission. And only one of the verbs is a main imperative verb, and it's not go. This doesn't really come across in our English translations, but the word go is actually the same type of verb that we see later in the verse with teaching and baptizing. No, the main imperative verb in this text is make disciples. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't commanding us as his disciples to go. That is a part of his commission. But what I think it does mean is that we have to broaden our concept of what it means to go. I think it means that we are to go wherever God is calling us. And for some of you, that may mean going somewhere outside of Tennessee or even outside of the U.S. God may be calling you in this room, or he may be calling your children to go and be ambassadors for his name in a foreign land. Or God may be calling you to stay right here in Franklin. In Acts 1, in a passage that's very similar to to this, right before Jesus ascends into heaven, he tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So we can think of these three locales as like concentric circles. The first circle that he tells his disciples is Jerusalem. And this, is, this would have been the backyard of the disciples. This would have been Franklin and Nashville and Middle Tennessee. The second circle that he draws is Judea and Samaria. These were the surrounding regions to Jerusalem. And so it would have been like going into Kentucky or Georgia and Alabama. And then the third circle that he draws is to the ends of the earth. And this is going to all the nations. And the disciples are to go into all of these areas. And so the point is that Jesus is commissioning, commissioning us to go wherever God calls us, whether that's in our backyard of Franklin or to the ends of the earth. And so I would encourage you to pray two things for you and for your children. First, pray that God would make it clear where he is calling you to go. And then second, and maybe more importantly, pray that God would actually open your heart to going where he is calling you. So that is the first part of this commission. The second thing that Jesus says is make disciples. And as I just said, this is the main verb. This is where the emphasis lies in Jesus' commission. Now, I think disciple is one of these words that's entered into our Christian jargon. And so every once in a while, it can be helpful to define our terms. What is a disciple exactly? Well, simply put, a disciple is someone who learns from or follows another person. And whom are we supposed to be following Well, we're supposed to be following Jesus. So when he commands us to make disciples, 
He's not commanding us to make followers of ourselves, contrary to Twitter and Instagram. We are not to make disciples of us. We are to make disciples of Jesus. Others are supposed to be following him. And so, essentially, this means bringing other people into a relationship with Jesus so that they can learn from him. That's at the heart of Jesus' purpose for us. It's to spread his kingdom by bringing others into it. And this is not a commission that's given to specific individuals in the church who have the right personality or the right gifts. This is a command that's given to the whole church, including every follower of Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you would consider yourself a Christian, then you are called to make disciples. And there's a lot that could be said about how to do this or, or, or what could be said. And I'm going to let Tony and Nate answer a lot of your questions in that regard. But what I do want to say is this starts by simply building relationships with people who don't know Jesus. In order for us to, to, uh, to make disciples who don't know Jesus, we too have to know people who don't know Jesus. Now, it's natural for all of us to gravitate towards others who share the same values. And so we do that as Christians. And we need those relationships to strengthen us and to encourage us and sharpen us. But God has not called us to spend all of our time with people who think like us, who believe the same things as us, and who live in the same way as us. No, the only way that we can make disciples of Jesus is if we know people who don't know Jesus. And so if you're if you're here this morning and you have some friends who are non-Christians, I would encourage you to lean in to those relationships. But maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, I actually don't have any close friends who, who don't know Jesus. Well, then I would encourage you to start looking for those people around you, whether that's in your neighborhood or in your workplace. Find those people and then begin to build relationships with them and then tell them about Jesus. Now, you're probably thinking, Weston, that's really easy for you to say because you're a professional. You do this for a living every day. Well, actually, it's not very easy for me to say, and you would be surprised at how self-conscious I get around 18-year-olds and how that hinders me from talking to them about Jesus. But the more I talk to college students every day, the more I realize that everyone's hearts are hungry and hurting. And so if you're wondering where to start in those conversations, I would encourage you to start simply by asking questions. The great Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer once said that if I only had one hour with a person, I would spend 55 minutes asking questions and five minutes giving answers. So ask these people about their lives, about their joys and their sorrows. Asking, ask them about what they believe and what they value and why. And I promise you that you will be amazed at how that opens up opportunities for you to share your faith. And again, you can do this in confidence, knowing that your friends' and your family members' lives are also under the authority of Jesus. He is already sovereignly at work in their lives. So Jesus tells us to make disciples, and then he goes on to say, of all nations— now, when Jesus first came onto the scene, his ministry was focused on the Jewish people. 
In fact, earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 10, he tells his disciples, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that's because the nation of Israel were God's chosen people in the Old Testament. And so when when Jesus steps onto the scene and begins this new messianic era, it makes sense that he would start with the Jewish people. But Throughout the whole of Jesus' life, we catch glimpses that his mission is not just for the Jewish people. Even in his genealogy in chapter 1, we find people in the lineage of Jesus who do not belong to the Jewish people. And then in chapter 2, who are the very first people that come and worship Jesus? It's not the Jewish people. It's not the scribes or the Pharisees. No, it's the Magi from the East. In chapter 8, we also see that Jesus goes and he heals the servant of a Roman centurion. And so all along, Jesus has been hinting that his mission is for all people of all nations. And so now that his redemptive work has been completed with his death and resurrection, it should be no surprise to us that he commands us as his followers to spread his kingdom to all nations. And if you're a Christian here this morning... You're a product of that. You are the all nations that Jesus had in mind. Your life is proof that Jesus' purpose is to gather people from every nation and tribe and tongue. But that means that Jesus' kingdom, it's bigger than Nashville. It's bigger than Tennessee. It's it's bigger than America. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than our denomination. It's bigger than the style of worship that we prefer or the songs that we like to sing. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than the translation of the Bible that we use. It's even bigger than the language which we are using to worship this morning. Jesus' authority is over all the earth. And so his kingdom is a worldwide kingdom. And this is meant to put our lives into perspective, but it's not meant to make us feel small. No, it's actually to give our lives a larger purpose because we are participating in a worldwide mission. And I think that we have a unique opportunity to participate in this this mission to all nations because right now, all the nations are coming to Nashville. As Nashville is growing, that means that people from foreign nations are also coming with it. I actually read one statistic that said from 2000 to 2012, 60% of the growth in the greater Nashville area came from immigrants. And so if you're feeling compelled to build a new relationship with someone who doesn't know Jesus, maybe look around to see the nations that are in our midst. Okay, so I promise I'm going to speed up a little bit. The next thing that Jesus says is that we are to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a very important text for understanding our doctrine of baptism. And again, I'm going to leave Nate and Tony to answer all of your questions about that. But what I will say is that this shows us that Jesus' purpose for us is a collective purpose. Why do I say that? Because you as individuals are not called to go around baptizing people. No, baptism is the work of the church. It is God's people as a whole, led by its ministers, coming together and celebrating people coming into the kingdom. 
And so this is meant to be an encouragement to us that we are not in this alone. Jesus' purpose for you is not a solitary individual purpose. It's not just you and Jesus against the world. And I I think we actually get distressed about our purpose because we look at it so myopically and individualistically. We think my purpose is just for me and so I've got to be the one to figure it out. But when Jesus calls us to himself and calls us into his mission, he's calling us to be a part of a people. He's placing us on a team to strive alongside of others. And I don't know about you, but that kind of takes the pressure off of me a little bit. Because when I step foot onto a campus of 20,000 undergraduate students, I can feel a little overwhelmed. I can feel like it's all on me to just try to build the kingdom all by myself at MTSU. But what happens is I sit down with students and I start to hear their stories and about all the people that had a hand in bringing them into Christ's kingdom. And then I remember, it's not my sole responsibility to save other people or to lead them on the right path. God is using all sorts of people. He's using the whole church to grow his kingdom. And so when we baptize others in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, what we're doing is we are corporately celebrating how God is accomplishing his purposes through all of us. That is what we are called to in baptism. But Jesus goes on to say, that we are also to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, this is rather straightforward. It gives us a little more clarification for what it means to make disciples. We're not just trying to make converts. We're trying to lead others into lives of obedience to Jesus. But some of you might be thinking, yeah, but I I don't really teach. I'm not an ordained minister. I don't teach Sunday school. So how am I supposed to be involved with this mission and commission to teach. Well, even if if you don't formally teach, we all have so many opportunities to teach others every day what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, just in our ordinary lives. Whether you're a mother raising children or whether you're in the workplace, your life teaches others what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. But this requires that we follow Jesus and know what he commands, right? In order to teach others all that he commanded, we have to have understood what Jesus teaches us. And so this is the root of Jesus' purpose for us. In carrying out the particulars of this commission, we are actually called into a deeper relationship with Jesus ourselves. The purpose that Jesus gives us starts with knowing and loving him. Why is that the case? Well, because we all share things that we love. I'll give you an example. My intern with RUF for the past year was the biggest fan of any musician that I've ever met. In fact, just last night, he went to see the Dave Matthews Band for the 42nd time. He knows the Dave Matthews Band in a very intimate way. He can tell you where they are at all times. He can tell you what songs they played at their most recent concerts. And of course, he could sing you every line to every song. And so all this last year, I heard about how awesome the Dave Matthews Band is. He wanted me to become a disciple of the Dave Matthews Band as well. And haven't we all experienced this? 
Whenever we love something, whether that's a new movie that we saw or a TV show or a book or a new restaurant or our kids, we want to share it with others, right? That's why we all overshare pictures of our family on Facebook. It's because when we know and love something, we naturally want to share it with others. And so at the root of Jesus' commission is an invitation to follow him more closely, to love him more deeply. It's an invitation to experience our relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, an invitation to know the goodness of keeping his commands. That is Jesus' primary purpose for us, and out of that naturally flows this commission to share that relationship with others. But still, these particulars may sound like a lot. And so that is why Jesus gives us the promise of the commission. So last fall, only two weeks after closing on our first house, the air conditioning unit went out. And so I did what all good millennials do. I got on YouTube. I got on YouTube to see if I could figure out what was wrong. But I quickly realized that I was in way over my head. Because I was watching these guys on YouTube who had all these tools and know-how that I didn't have. And I was watching these videos, I was thinking, there's no way. This is too tall of an order for me to do by myself. You know, I, I believed that these guys on YouTube had the experience and the authority to tell me what to do. But what I really wanted was for them to step out of the YouTube video into real life so that they could be with me, walking with me step by step through what I was supposed to be doing. Now, of course, a guy in a YouTube video can't provide that. But that's exactly what Jesus promises us when he gives us this commission. He doesn't give us marching orders and then just send us out to figure out what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it all by ourselves. No, he says, behold, which is his way of, of getting our attention, of emphasizing a point. He says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In giving us his purpose, Jesus also promises his presence with us. And this promise of his presence is also the promise of his power. All throughout the Bible, whenever God says, I am with you, what he's saying is, I will be with you to empower you to fulfill my purposes for your life. Back in Exodus 3, when God first commissioned Moses to lead the Israelites from Egypt, Moses contested, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And the Lord simply replied, but I will be with you. And then when he commissioned Joshua to lead the people in conquering Canaan, he assured him, do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so Jesus picks up on this and he offers the same assurance to us. He says, I am with you. He assures us by promising his presence and his power to fulfill his purposes for our lives. And this promise is persistent. He says, I am with you always. And when he says always, he means I'm going to be with you every step of the way. And Jesus can make that promise 
because he has already died on the cross for sin and, and risen again to new life. And so there is nothing, neither sin, not even death, that can separate Jesus from us. And he also says, I am with you always to the end of the age. That phrase is not simply reiterating the word always. No, it's, it's a promise that his presence is going to persist until the day when he brings all the purposes for us and for this world to completion. That is what Jesus promises us. That's where the gospel of Matthew ends. And so that's where I want to end with you today. Jesus' primary purpose for us is to enter into a deeper relationship with him. And out of that flows the commission to share that relationship with others. The premise of this purpose is that Jesus has authority over all of our lives, over the whole world as the true king. And the promise of this purpose is that wherever you go, whatever you do, however the particulars of God's purpose play out in your life, Jesus is with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we profess that you have made Jesus the king over all things. But we also confess, Lord, that we look to other things to, to give us meaning and direction and purpose. And so we pray that you would draw our hearts to come and lay ourselves before you as the true king. May we receive your purpose for us of, of knowing you more intimately and then going out and bringing others in to know you and love you as well. But Lord, we confess that as we go out into the world, we do so with fear and trembling. And so we also pray that our hearts would hear your promise to us that you will be with us, that there is nothing that can separate us from you, and that you will be at work until you bring your purposes for our lives to their perfected end. We pray all of this in the name of our King, Jesus. Amen.